Welcome back to the Arbitration Station. I'm joined with Sadia Bhatti, the other delegates at the ICA Edinburgh 2022 Congress. Hi, Welcome Brian. back, Sadia. Yeah, it has, it was quite an experience. It was wonderful for me. It was the first time we a recording because you guys did this before. It was really good to have a Arbitration Station station. Exactly. We had our own room and thank you to, I, we thank them on LinkedIn, but we'll thank them again yeah. to the Scottish Arbitration Center and also to um, Andrew McKenzie and uh, Brandon Malone, who invited us specifically to join and be media sponsors. Um, it was a great event, exhausting, as you said, um, but luckily we're able to publish in this little mini series of different interviews that we picked up along the way. Mix of speakers at the event and non-speakers, but participants at the event. So we're offering you even more. Even more. <laughs> a sense of what was going on in discussions online and offline and a special christmas gift coming at the end of the year mm. so stay tuned so our next speaker is florian grisel who's a french sociologist so he was the only sociologist in the room there was actually a panel um, called the sociology of arbitration and florian who's an associate professor at the oxford center for Sociolegal studies has published actually two books on international arbitration. One is on the evolution of international arbitration. And Jewel, we always said we were going to talk about it at the book club. That's so true. We could do this. Um, and uh, a very interesting perspective on arbitration. So we were both kind of having a discussion. He was obviously seeing us. I was object of the study and he was seeing everyone um, from a different lens. Um, mm -hmm. So we had a very interesting discussion. the pleasure to have a non-lawyer in the room with us and I know Jewel you're not here with me today but we keep talking about having non-lawyers at least I did non-lawyers in the room and it's my pleasure to have a Florian Grisel who's a, can I say you're a sociologist or should I say you're a professor I don't know with academics I don't want to take you An know academic, I don't want to take, that's fine I don't want a to professor, take yes. should I say professor uh, Grisel do people say Grisel uh, between French I can't call you you Grisel. can call me Florian or oh, Florian. That's, Florian that's much better I would say the proper way <laughs> <laughs> welcome Florian thank you so much for making time um, thank Florian, you very much Sadia. as everybody knows was a speaker at ICA there was a panel on sociology of arbitration which was very enlightening and uh I'm sure uh, most of you know that uh, we talked about it a lot on the podcast. Uh, one of our first readings, uh, at least my readings, introduction of arbitration was dealing in virtue with Yves Dozelet, and I'm pronouncing it French, and Gart, I don't even know his first name, he's an American. Bryant. Bryant, sorry. <laughs> and so we had an American and a French got together, sociologist, to study arbitration from a sociological objective perspective. And Florian uh, and I just met for the first time, but I had, and I think I mentioned it multiple times in your book, whether in conferences or the podcast, there's a book that Florian uh, co-authored, 
Now, the claims they make in this book, uh, and that was basically the second reason why I, I became really interested in this book, uh, is one that has been incredibly influential in the sociological uh, literature on globalization mm -hmm. and particularly on legal globalization. Yes. Okay. Um, Yves Dozale is French, uh, mm -hmm. he's a sociologist. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, he worked at a certain point in his career with Pierre Bourdieu, the, mm -hmm. the famous French sociologist. Yes, he was considered a god in our country, by the way. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> When yes. he died, it was like when the queen died right now. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, pretty much. Honestly, I shed tears. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Uh, extremely respected the sociologist. Brian Garth is, is American and uh, uh, very much um, embedded in the... Uh, social legal uh, world in the US, uh, but maybe more a little more on the on the legal side. In any case, why is their claim uh, so important um, for the sociology of law and for the sociology of legal globalization? And why is it deemed to be a bit controversial when you speak with uh, people involved in international arbitration. So that was really what struck me at the beginning, is the discrepancy between the success of this book in the world of legal globalization, in the, in the literature on legal globalization on the one hand, and on the other hand, the appraisal that was made of this book by 
people who were insiders of international arbitration. Mm-hmm. So when you ask these people, and I did that back in the 2000s, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think of this claim that Dozella and Garth are making about the development of international arbitration? And I will say a word in a minute about the nature of this claim. Most people would tell me, well, you know, that's not really how it happened. Mm-hmm. I don't really recognize the evolution that I lived through Uh, the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. As a sociologist, Mm -hmm. when the insiders are telling you, well, what you're saying is not really what I lived, Mm -hmm. you know you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And that always stayed in the back of my mind because I always admired this book, Mm -hmm. but always kept in mind that the insiders are telling us and me, well, be careful, this is not exactly what happened. Mm Now, what is the claim that Yeah, I think a lot of people do not know, maybe perhaps do not what what the claim was. Absolutely. Uh, And a lot of people refer to to Dozal and Garth. It's a fundamental book of arbitration, but actually not so many people know exactly what -hmm. is the fundamental claim they are making. You are referring to the fact that it's a collection of of, uh, papers. There is one chapter that is particularly important in this Mm -hmm. book. That's chapter three which is also a, a, a paper that was published in the leading journal of mm-hmm. sociology, the Law and Society Review. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the one called Les Marchands du Droit? Is that exactly. One? They also translated it in... Uh, I don't know. That was the first book oh, of Dezalé, oh, Les I'm Marchands sorry. du Droit. But uh, okay. I'm impressed. Uh, you <laughs> you, you have such a strong <laughs> command of uh, French sociology. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, that was, I think, the first book of, of Yves Dezalé. Okay. And uh, it's a slightly different um, okay. uh, book. Um, But in any case, uh, the claim they are making is that international arbitration was transformed at the turn of the 1980s by the interaction, and I should immediately qualify the nature of this interaction, the competitive interaction between two classes of people. On the one hand, an old generation Mm -hmm. of law professors from continental Europe whom they called the grand old man. Mm-hmm. Um, these people were the masters of the Lex Mercatoria, people who had the charisma that is needed to um, decide a dispute. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand... And there were uh, Lalive, Pierre Lalive. That's a perfect example. Yeah, exactly. uh, there are so many examples yeah. we know, mm-hmm. but Lalive is yeah, probably one, one of the prime yeah. examples of a grand old man mm-hmm. with his legitimacy, his right. charisma, mm-hmm. experience, and, and uh, basically also a legitimacy being the first or among the first to practice international arbitration. And on the other hand, a new class of practitioners, mm-hmm. younger, mm-hmm. less charismatic, mm-hmm. but more expert mm-hmm. in the field of procedure and litigation. And they called these people the young technocrats, mm-hmm. people, lawyers based in Anglo-American law firms who know the technique of arbitration, who know how to build a case, how to defend it, how to gather evidence, how to cross-examine mm-hmm. people. Not simply people who rely on their professorial stature to basically establish themselves as natural leaders, but people who work and develop the procedural and technical skills in order to become these leaders. The claim of Dozale and Garth is that there was a kind of conflict between these two groups Mm -hmm. and that the second group, the younger ones, the young technocrats, prevailed. 
-hmm. and that basically the fact that they prevailed had a tremendous impact on uh, the features of international arbitration. So typically, the fact that arbitration is more and more like a judicial system with rules, procedures that have developed over time, um, the fact that Anglo-American law firms have become so preeminent in this field. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the claim of the Zalian Garth. Mm-hmm. Now, I always kept in the back of my mind uh, this claim uh, is extremely interesting, but people, the insiders, are telling me that it's it's not accurate, and I thought. But the insiders are what time? Because this book was written in the 90s. Yes. I, I purposely talked about Pierre Lelief because this was a really old generation. Right. I think, and please correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong because it's not, I, mm-hmm. I don't, but I do remember that there was a mention of Jan Paulsen in the book. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I remember there was like, it was almost like there was a pre-Jan Paulsen period and an after Jan Paulsen period. And Jan Paulsen was the second category of people. Absolutely, and yes. I think, and please again correct me if I'm wrong, that what he they were saying essentially is these people, the second category mm. of people, were shaping the the practice of arbitration, maybe even the law, no? Yes. Didn't they, didn't they go so the, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And so when you're saying that there's this, because this is the first time I'm 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 really hearing this like that, that you thought there was the, the insiders yeah. were saying this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Were they the insiders of Jan Paulson's generation, of our generation, or of even Lanif's generation? What, what so I don't want to disclose names because okay. I don't want to no, put words in, in the mouth, the but I will answer. Um, it was the people I spoke to were the generation of Jan Paulson. I see. So the, the young technocrats in the terminology. As being right, exactly. Some of those people, and I guess all of the people of this generation I talked to, told me, no, it, it doesn't really work. That's not the way it was. There was no such conflict mm-hmm. with the older generation. Mm-hmm. And there, was, there were no such fundamental distinction between us and the older ones. In fact, there was some level of continuity. Mm-hmm. The problem is really, once you hear that, how do you proceed? Right. And um, I kept that in the back of my mind. And uh, and um, when you do social sciences, what you need is data. Mm-hmm. Yes. Data is the key to be able to study social objects, mm-hmm. as you said, mm-hmm. individuals or rules or, mm-hmm. or practices, customs, norms. And the problem in arbitration is that the data is very hard to um, gain. Mm-hmm. Dezale and Garth were relatively lucky because they were able to interview over 300 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's something... Is that a lot? Do you consider that a lot, by the way? Yes, yes. Okay. But by, by social scientific standard, that, that's, a, that's a... That's a lot. That's okay. a lot. Okay. That's, okay. A, that's so an incredible meaningful. achievement. Okay, it is absolutely meaningful in terms of, of a data set. Okay. Uh, in fact, it's a tour de force to be able to interview okay. so many people. Having interviewed people a lot. Uh, interviewing 300 people represents years of work, oh, years and years of okay. work. It's a very intense mm-hmm. kind of process. In any case, 
you need data and I didn't really have the data to, to test uh, this, uh, this, uh, this claim that they're making and try to, to cast a new light on, on, this, uh, on, this, uh, on this claim. But the data came to me mm-hmm. um, and the data came to me uh, through the International Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. which was the main case study of the Zalem Garth. The, the International Chamber of Commerce shared a portion of their older archives with me. So Very they are good. Well done, the ICC for being well done, the ICC. Absolutely, yes. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> no, of course, you know they're criticized sometimes, and I think they've done absolutely. a lot in terms of transparency. Absolutely, yeah. they have done a lot, and of course, there are some confidentiality mm-hmm. uh, restrictions. But uh, but the data I'm interested in is is non-confidential. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to exploit this data for the period between the early 1920s and the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. And that data helped me assess the claim of Dozalé and Garth that the older generation of people, the, the leaders of international arbitration, were these grand old men. Mm-hmm. So remember, the grand old men in Dozalé and Garth account are these leaders, people with a very high level of social cultural mm-hmm. and symbolic capital, mm-hmm. to borrow the language yeah. of Bourdieu, mm-hmm. um, and who drew this capital from prestigious positions in prestigious universities mm-hmm. in um, Western Europe. Mm-hmm. So when I started collecting data on the arbitrators who were appointed in ICC cases between these, these years, what was I expecting to see? Mm-hmm. If the Zalem Garth were correct, I was expecting to see grand old men being appointed as arbitrators in these cases, i.e., professors yes. with very, uh, you know, with charismatic legitimacy embedded in prestigious universities of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And what did I see when I collected the data and analyzed the data? I didn't like, this is boring. Why is that charismatic? <laughs> is that what you thought? No, just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I saw something very different. I saw, I collected a lot of data and I established a short list of the leaders of international arbitration in this time period, a list of 10 people. Okay. And the, 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 the list is in one of my papers published at the Law and Society Review, the same journal where Dezale and Garth published their chapter three of Dealing in Virtue. And this list is available there. There is a list of of 10 people, uh, 10 names. And when you look at these 10 names, I'm sorry, but these are not grand old men. Give us us the names, come on. These are are men, Okay. but they are not always professors. Okay. And they are relatively unknown in their countries. So the famous ones, you will know them. Like for instance, Bertolt Goldman. I don't know if that rings a bell. It was a a gigantic name in arbitration in the 1980s, 1990s, early 1990s in in, uh, the Fouchard Gaillard Goldman. Exactly, is the last of the the three. (laughs) Right, exactly, that we all used. (laughs) Exactly. That's it, that's it. (laughs) All kinds of interesting (laughs) things you can do with this book. Um, um, so Goldman is one of them, but let's let's pause and talk about Goldman. Okay, you, you may remember from dealing in virtue that Goldman is one of the examples of grand old man used by Dozalé and Garth, mm-hmm. uh, just like Lali, for yes. instance. And Goldman, it is true when you look at the surface of his sociological profile, you could 
see a grand old man. Mm -hmm. He was the dean of the University of Paris, very famous professor, etc., etc. But when you look at the detail of his life, you see a very different picture. Mm -hmm. He was an immigrant from Mm -hmm. Romania who came to Paris with his brother Mm -hmm. to study law. Mm -hmm. He was not rich. Mm -hmm. Um, He had an accent when he spoke French. Mm -hmm. Um, He's one of many leaders of international arbitration who had life stories that are much more complex and much more challenging than the image of a, you know, an elite member resting on a prestigious position, drawing right. legitimacy from That's this position. But yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What I see, in fact, is that among these 10 people, the majority of them were migrants mm-hmm. and very often forced migrants. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so first generation. First generation. First mm-hmm. generation. And when I talked to, uh, to their families or I did research on them, I asked, was your dad or your granddad a famous lawyer? And they said, not at all. Mm-hmm. It was someone who had a very difficult life and who achieved to have cases as an arbitrator, but mainly because this person had linguistic skills and legal skills that he, because we're talking only about men, and that's where Dezalem Garth got it right, uh, he drew from a very um, specific personal trajectory, Mm -hmm. basically a trajectory of migration, a trajectory of marginality. Um, so that's that's the the story that I that I that I that I tell, and um, and I believe it is a story that is fundamentally different from the story told by uh, Dozalenga. Yeah. But how does that you know? T- for I'm going to take the practitioner cap yeah. right now. Florian, how does that change the analysis of the 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 law in itself and the market? Is is that relevant? Absolutely, you know? absolutely relevant. Um, and maybe m- my uh, vision of relevance is, might be <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little different, it. but let me give it a try, yeah. okay? Um, when you listen to Dezalé and Garth, they're talking about the judicialization, the Americanization of international arbitration. Yes. So basically how it became a system that is more and more like a common law system. Mm-hmm. And their explanation for that is simply the fact that the young technocrats, those anchored in the Anglo-American law firms prevailed. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? They simply copied and pasted procedures that they borrowed from their system of origin. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in this story. Mm -hmm. I think international arbitration is a melting pot Mm -hmm. of legal traditions. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the marginalized lawyers who built this system were not leaders in a specific system is, a, I believe, a key explanatory factor for the fact that none of the traditions really prevailed. What they did is to mix different traditions. Let's talk, for instance, if we want to talk concrete yeah. law, let's talk about document production. Yes, yes. Document production is a perfect illustration of how the system of arbitration blended civil law and common law features in a system that is sui generis, a system that is unique in itself. You mean document production in arbitration? In arbitration. Yes, it is not... Uh, it is often time when, when we hear their expression document production, the French people just, just start having, you know, like a heart attack. 
Because for them, it's like an American procedure. And, uh, right. Production of documents. Production of documents. Was an, ex was an, an expression that is a, a kind of very foreign for, for civilians. Civil sure. Because we don't do that in, before the French, French courts, right? Sure. So something that was highly, highly influenced, no? From the, from the Amer uh, common well, system. My sense is that it is a system that, of course, draws from uh, some common law systems, mm -hmm. but still has been transformed into something specific and that is a lot less aggressive than what you can find in common law systems. So just saying, well, it's something that looks like the common law, hence, you know, it is the common law is uh, very reductive, I would mm -hmm. say. Sure. My understanding is that it's a, a blending process, perhaps with a slightly more common law touch than 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 other systems of of uh, of, uh, of uh, some other evidentiary systems, but you get my point. The there are very concrete consequences yes. uh, flowing from the nature of the individuals who were involved and who built international arbitration because they were themselves a melting pot of traditions. Yeah, absolutely. So that had a direct impact on them being influenced on, on the law they were absolutely they were, they had absolutely an on and, and let me yeah. let me let me push the argument further and think about the new generation the successors yes. the new leaders for instance you oh wow yes look well. at look at yourself and you have a profile that is um, very uh, typical of the new leading generation of international arbitration. Mm -hmm. What you've done, willingly or not, I don't know, and it would be interesting to know, is to blend features from different systems in order to become competitive in that new system, which is international arbitration. Studied in France, studied in, uh, in the US, blended features from different systems. And I'm sure if I ask you, but maybe I should not ask <laughs> you in this way with this very leading way of asking the question, I'm sure you don't fully consider yourself as a French lawyer or as a U.S. lawyer. No, for sure. No, that's for sure. Here we go. 100%. Yeah. You consider yourself as an arbitration lawyer. Yes, absolutely. That's very true. And I think that's very true of all my colleagues of my generation. And, and all the resumes that I'm getting when I'm recruiting, uh, that's what people say. It's like they're international cosmopolitan absolutely. lawyers. Absolutely. What I believe the new generation did is to reproduce the social features of the old generation, except the old generation did not do it on purpose. The old generation were simply uh, the byproduct of history. <laughs> Jewish lawyers, a lot of them coming from Germany, migrating to Western Europe right. and England, yeah. and, or even uh, the East Coast of the US, mm -hmm. uh, and gaining this very complex background with linguistic skills that are unique. The new generation... That's what they are, though. You're describing every single candidate that's right. applying for a job in arbitration. The big difference is that the new ones, the young ones, are doing it on purpose. Yes, okay, I see. But they're reproducing features yeah, that, are, that, are, that are existing. Yeah, okay. um, so we're not talking about the victory of the common law over the civil law. I believe we're seeing the emergence of a transnational legal profession with its own values and identities. Now, well, this is all very theoretical, but I'm fascinated by sociology because it highlights 
the world as it is. Well, it's not very um, so theoretical. It's not because when you look at the IBA rules of taking of evidence, and you know, there's been the discussion about the Prague rules as well, because the IBA yeah. rules were criticized for being too American. Right. 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 But if you look at them, and in effect, you know, it is it is a, a, a cocktail. Should we use that yeah, term? Yeah. Yeah. Melting pot. Melting pot cocktail, is a good word. Yeah. Right. Of of different practices. Yes. For sure. Absolutely. And common, I mean, it, it does say in the in the preamble as well. I think um, that this is this is what it is, and the mm. practitioners today, um, even at ICA. Tell me, Erika, have you been following? Do you think there's not too many common lawyers right now? I'm going to be controversial now. <laughs> or do you have, do you think there's a good balance of civil trained lawyers? Or do you think everyone's transnational, actually? Well, what what is your perspective of that? Of I'm not the good interviewee to ask for a good reason. I do not have the insider knowledge of ICA, but I'll give you a small story for you. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a very prominent arbitrator civil law based okay. French speaker okay. earlier today okay. and um, he uh, mentioned the fact that there were many presentations in English Yes, and um, he didn't mention the common law aspect mm-hmm. but but that's the lingua franca that's like the business language that's right that's right I think there is still a level of hybridization if yeah. I may say blended with some uniformity. Language is one of these uniform yeah, factors, yeah, but um, we also reinvent a language, to mm-hmm. be frank. I think yes. native speakers probably listen to us and are probably, uh, you know, pulling their hair, you know, and, but, you know, we understand each other. We're both actually French speakers, but here we are mm-hmm. speaking English. Yes. Um, <laughs> does it mean yes, we're absurd. anglicized or Americanized? Yeah. I'm not sure about that. Right, I think right. we're, I think we're just talking the language, the professional yes. language. For, yes. For, um, yes, absolutely. You just want absolutely. To get the message across. Um, That's it. To, to our to talk to our listeners, and and I think it guys that. But it, there is a point to be made. It's true, and I think Paris Arbitration Week, and I, I say that as a French person, so I'm totally biased, and I say that practicing in a French firm, which is international. Uh, but it's often viewed as a French firm because it's 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 French and it's not English or American. Mm-hmm. Um, at Paris Arbitration Week, we we actually hosted two events in French because we, you know, exactly. And there were a couple of events in French. Not half of them were French, but yeah. you would think it's Paris Arbitration Week. There's yeah. so many people coming from Francophone Africa as well. You know, it's not just French people yeah. or the Belgian or the yeah. Swiss and, yeah. and everything yet is in English. So that's interesting. The language does have yeah. an effect on, on how long it's, yeah. Um, yeah, on the law itself, I think, indirectly. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's undeniable. I think that, that I think those Alain Garth put their finger on something that happened clearly but uh, I think it goes beyond what happened in arbitration I think it's it touches upon what happened in the business world and international law in general international law globalization yeah. does it mean that um, globalization is made or shaped in the image of the leading nations mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure about that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm much more optimistic as to the capacity for people who are situated at the margins and at the intersection between systems to blend features of different systems. I think 
there are unique people who have that capacity and we see more and more of these people on the international scene and particularly in international arbitration. That's a very good term they're using, blending, because in our community right now we're using a lot of the term diversity mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes, um, I think sadly, the discourse is, is just focused sometimes just on women and you're like, come on, it's 2022 and I, and I know that, you know, and I'm sure you're, you're, you're um, working on this as well now, this, this, this wider discussion on ESG and mm. inclusion yes. is the word used. So is, is that your view of, of, of what we call diversity and inclusion, is, is having this blended transnational approach? Is, is that how you would view yeah. the future of arbitration in the next Absol week? Absolutely, without any doubt. Um, I fully agree with you. I've been reflecting a lot on this, uh, but uh, at an individual level without sharing it necessarily. Because I make that argument, at the same time, I'm deeply aware of the fact that the people that I identified um, are still, most of them, white men. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that they were... Mm, typical white men? I don't think so. I think they were themselves blending different social systems. And I, I, I like your comments that Gender is not the only relevant right, factor. There is a, yeah. Exactly. But I do believe that a, a truly globalized transnational system has to be self-aware of the necessity to um, open the gates to different types of people. Because in fact, that's the very nature of the system that has been built in the past few decades. Mm -hmm. And very few people are aware of this. So it, my, my kind of message is a very optimistic one. Arbitration is a very remarkable um, example of emergence of a new system that is blending the features of old systems. Mm -hmm. And I think it has the capacity to absorb more features. I mean, that's, that's in the DNA of the organization, the institution. I think this is a perfect way to, to end this this conversation. Florian, thank you so much. I wish thank we you could so speak. Much. Um, I personally would talk hours about me this. Too. <laughs> I'm sure uh, if Brian and Jewel would me right now, they would also, especially Jewel, because we had a lot of conversation on this. But So we will probably welcome you back. Thank you very <laughs> much. Florian, I maybe, look forward to uh, it. Before, before I end this, maybe do you want to talk about what you're working on right now? Or is that too... Yes, of course, of course. So I'm working on uh, two research projects and I won't be taking too much uh, time on this, no, but um, one yeah. is on arbitration, Okay. but arbitration on Wikipedia. Arbitration on Wikipedia, okay. Wikipedia has its own system of arbitration and I'm doing an empirical study of that uh, arbitration system. I'm currently writing a couple of papers on that topic. Mm -hmm. um, Wikipedia is a fascinating space. It's also a new space, um, but it's one unexpectedly where disputes are extremely fierce. And so I'm really interested. So disputes relating to articles published on Wikipedia? Absolutely. Oh, yes. that's interesting. Yes. So we okay. So you have to come back and tell us. I would love this. to. I would love to. <laughs> that's the first project. The yeah. second project, um, basically, um, uses or uh, tries to extend the findings that I made in international arbitration to the broader field of international law. And the project is about the International Court of Justice mm -hmm. and perhaps, 
I say perhaps because that's the project, the International Law Commission. And the, the project is to study the extent to which these institutions breed a set of cultural values that are global and that inform and create a social basis, a social cultural basis for the development of international law. So that's a project that I've been developing with a, a colleague from Australia, mm. um, who is a professor at the Australian National University. Mm. Blending. And, uh, <laughs> again, blending. Um, and um, and that's, that's uh, what I'm working on at the moment. But I don't know what will be the next uh, book or what will be the big project. Now I have like, these uh, different projects going on, but that's what makes uh, academic life exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Brian. We look forward to reading those and talking to you about it. Thank, thank you so much. You.